Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Laura Landon for the Journalism Channel. Today we'll be talking about the crisis in American journalism with Victor Picard. He's the author of a recent book that maintains journalism is essential to democracy, yet Americans aren't getting the journalism they need. The book's title poses its central question, Democracy Without Journalism? And its subtitle is A Call to Action, Confronting the Misinformation Society. Victor Picard writes that what he terms toxic commercialism is at the heart of the rot in the American news system. In their drive for profits based on ad revenues, traditional newsrooms increasingly produce sensational clickbait, while social media giants like Facebook and Google spread outright lies and misinformation to keep their audiences enraged and engaged. Picard's book argues that the rise of Donald Trump illustrates core media failures, ones worsened by the steady decline in the numbers of journalists covering the news. The book says this crisis is not new and that citizen blogging or internet paywalls won't fix it. Only news reporting, financed by public money, not advertising, can save both American journalism and American democracy. Victor Picard is the author of several previous books, including Net Neutrality, A New Deal for the Digital Age, and America's Battle for Media Democracy. He's Professor of Media Policy and Political Economy at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. And that's where we reached him. Our interview was conducted by Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. You've written extensively about the American news media system and and compared it to journalism in other countries. Um, I'm wondering what led you to become interested in U.S. media and the way they present the news. Well, probably first and foremost, the reason why I became so interested in the American news media is the simple fact that I'm immersed in that system. Um, although I am a, a quarter Canadian uh, by heritage, I've, I'm born and raised uh, in the United States. And I um, have always been struck, at least since I began my graduate studies, by some of the particularities of the U.S. media system and how there are these recurring patterns in terms of how stories get covered, what's typically omitted or selected or emphasized in news narratives. And once you become interested, once you develop a kind of critical analysis of news media, it's not long before you try to look behind the curtain, as it were, to try to get at some of the structural underpinnings that typically lead to a particular kind of news coverage. Now, near the beginning of your book, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society, uh, you refer to Donald Trump's rise and his unexpected election as president. Um, You write that, uh, and I'm quoting from your book here, three core media failures helped enable Trump's election. So let's look at these three core media failures in turn. Um, What would you say was the first one? Well, the first one that was most visible with Donald Trump's ascendance was simply the constant coverage in our news media, particularly cable or or rather television news coverage. Uh, But I'm very clear to show in the beginning of my book, as as you mentioned, that this coverage was symptomatic 
of deeper structural pathologies in the American news media system. So in other words, Trump was not the primary cause, but rather symptomatic, um, a symptom of, of these deeper maladies. And what I try to show is that there was this extreme commercial logic that was driving the news coverage that gave Trump constant coverage in, in our news media, billions of dollars worth of, of free media attention. Um, and, and much of this it can be attributed to these typical news routines that are so uh, present in the American news media system, false equivalents, uh, trivializing and sensationalizing important issues in, in the media, this kind of horse race coverage where you're focused on, you know, what are the polls telling us now? What candidate is is up or down? What outrageous thing did one candidate say about another? There's a focus on, you know, what were they wearing, especially in the 2016 elections. Uh, there was this focus on, for example, what what clothes, you know, what was the fashion that Hillary Clinton um, was showcasing. Um, so, of course, this coverage was also gendered in many ways, but it really goes back to these commercial imperatives that privilege particular values over others. Less movies, you might recall, infamously said, you know, this coverage might not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Uh, Less movies, of course, being the former, uh, now disgraced CEO of CBS. So I think that just speaks volumes as to the kinds of values that the American media system really triumph, the imperatives. I always say this commercialism trumps democracy, uh, to use a terrible pun. Um, So I I think that first failure was very much visible, although I would argue, again, it's a symptom, not the underlying cause. Victor, you mentioned uh, Les Moonves, the uh, chairman and chief executive officer of CBS, and I happen to have a clip of him lined up here. So let's listen to uh, Les Moonves on the coverage of Trump on CBS. Man, who would have expected the ride we're all having right now? This is pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, who would have thought that this circus would come to town? But, um, you know, it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. That's all I got to (laughs) say. So what, what can I say? It's, uh, you know, the, the, the money's rolling in and uh, this is, polls are open. This is, this is fun. We had a debate a couple of weeks ago with 14 million people on a Saturday night. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, that's all I can say. It, it, it is, I've never seen anything like this. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a, a very good year for us. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a terrible thing to say, but uh, bring it on, Donald. Go ahead. Keep going. So that was CBS, the former CBS CEO, Les Moonves, at the Morgan Stanley Technology Medium and Telecom Conference in San Francisco during the presidential campaign in 2016. And uh, it may be good for CBS, but you're arguing in your book (laughs) that the commercial imperative is not so great for America. That's right. I mean, much of this coverage is is great for media business, you might say, but it's not good for democratic society. And, you know, I should be clear that these tendencies are particularly pronounced in the U.S. for various structural reasons that I'm sure we'll we'll get into momentarily. But I would argue that in any commercial media system around the world, 
you're going to see similar patterns. And that's why, you know, when I focus on the journalism crisis in particular, it's not just an American journalism crisis. Increasingly, it's clear that it's a global journalism crisis. So I think uh, we can look at the U.S. system as kind of a case study or a cautionary tale of what goes wrong when you let commercial values overwhelm the democratic imperatives of a news media system. Now, we've been talking about what you see as the three core media failures that led to Trump's election. We have the first one, commercialism, excessive commercialism. What about the second core media failure that led to Trump? What was that? So beyond these uh, rampant commercial imperatives driving television news media, I would argue that, in fact, it's still the same commercial values though manifest in a different way, particularly in our social media. So the tremendous amounts of misinformation, or really that's a catch-all for disinformation or just low-quality information that was circulating through our social media, and also gained a lot of attention, I think, uh, especially following the 2016 elections in the U.S., um, this is another core failure. And, and, you know, all this growing concern around the role of Facebook um, and to a lesser degree, Google and some of the other uh, platform monopolies and the, the tremendous power they hold over our news and information systems. I think this is all bound up in um, this, this, again, commercial values overwhelming um, what should be seen as a core news and information infrastructure. Right. Uh, the the more uh, clicks they get, the longer they keep you on Facebook, the more money they make from advertising. That's absolutely right. And, you know, before perhaps the, the phrase was, if it bleeds, it leads. Now it's, if it's outrageous, it's contagious. And they want it to be contagious. The more that we engage with uh, content that flows through their news feeds in, in Facebook and Twitter, the more um, advertising they sell, or more importantly, the more information they gather from us, because they're constantly surveilling us, that they then in turn sell to advertisers and data brokers. So this is a very troubling uh, system. This is not the way a democratic society ideally would design their core news and information systems, but this is exactly what we're faced with. And we're increasingly seeing all the what economists might refer to as negative externalities or the, the social harms that are bred um, from this economic relationship. And it's something that we need to rein in, uh, I argue, throughout the book. Uh, and I have some ideas uh, about that. But, but most uh, immediately, I think we need to just draw attention to these structural Causes. It's not, you know, we're so much uh, struck by the, the, the symptoms and the surface level effects, but I constantly try to draw people to look under the hood, to try, you know, whatever metaphor we want to use, to try to see the, the core, the, get strike at the core roots of these problems. That's, that's my major goal with writing this book. And of course, Trump himself was an expert at using social media. Uh, in his campaign, uh, you know, a whole new uh, art that he was practicing there. That's exactly right. And as much as he benefited from mainstream coverage, and, and I always want to make sure that we don't let them off the hook. I mean, there was studies showing that even among our elite media, for example, the New York Times, 
there was almost no substantive coverage of actual policy differences between the candidates. Um, but then if you go beyond mainstream media coverage and just look at how Trump was able to exploit social media, it takes it to a whole new level. He's able to circumvent what little scrutiny he might receive by speaking directly uh, to, to, to audiences and, and to basically not be held uh, to account in any meaningful way. In, in other words, he's able to lie outrageously and, uh, and those lies are further amplified through social media. So what was the third core media failure that you, you say, you argue, led to Trump's election? Right. And, and I guess I, I would soften it a little bit uh, and, and say that, you know, these failures perhaps didn't directly lead, but they created the conditions that made it uh, more, uh, more, more uh, easily done so that Trump was able to ascend. Uh, politically when uh, he was he was promoting a very dangerous politics that really should have never seen the light of day but this third core failure that I focus on is really the the main subject of the of the book which is what I refer to and I mentioned earlier the journalism crisis and that is the collapse of actual journalism actual uh, original news reporting um, that we're seeing again in the US but increasingly around the world where financially, there's really no longer a model to sustain. Arguably, there never was a model, uh, a commercial model to begin with. But especially today, we're seeing this spectacular collapse of any kind of model that can support the journalism that democratic societies require. Yeah, I, I look at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the big media, they seem to be doing okay. But you talk about news deserts in the U.S. What do you mean by that? Right. So news desert is this very apt metaphor that's uh, increasingly prevalent in our in our discourse around around journalism, around democracy, where you have entire regions and communities that lack any access to local news media whatsoever. So. Really, the news desert problem gets at the heart of the journalism crisis, which is the complete disappearance of local journalism. And local journalism, as we all learn in school, is the hallmark of democratic society. We all learn that without a free and by implication functional press, democracy, self-governance is rendered impossible. So... If we lose local journalism, we really do, uh, in effect, lose democracy. And that's the, that's the core problem that I'm trying to draw attention to. Again, the economic structural roots of that crisis um, and what we need to uh, work our ways uh, out of this problem. You have a telling phrase in your book that, uh, as a journalist myself, I found a bit frightening. It's the hamsterization of journalism. What do you mean by that? I, I, I stole that phrase from, from, from uh, earlier, earlier critics, but I think that um, that basically is, uh, is an emphasis on um, you know, exploiting journalistic labor. So journalists are expected to do more for less. Um, and this, of course, naturally arises from the fact that there are just fewer journalists um, and, and uh, what journalists are there are expected to take on what previously had been done by 
you know, small armies of journalists, or or there's also an increasing reliance on on freelance labor, uh, even volunteer labor. So uh, this again is symptomatic of these deeper uh, economic problems, which is there's just not enough revenue. Uh, there's not enough financial support to sustain the kind of reporting that any democratic society requires. And this is especially clear when we look at what's happening around the kind of journalism that's often not the sec- these aren't the sexiest stories, um, but just, for example, reporting on the local school board or city hall or what's happening at the state level or the regional level, what's happening in state governments, for example. Those kind of journalists, that kind of reporting has almost entirely disappeared. Um, and, and, you know, that's the kind of reporting that doesn't s- typically uh, sell advertising. It doesn't serve as clickbait, but it's exactly that kind of journalism that democracy requires. And it's that kind of journalism that's rapidly disappearing. I just want to underline the job losses in journalism. I've got a clip here, Victor, from Amy Goodman, Democracy Now! May 19th, 2020. And she's just talking about job losses just since March with the advent of the COVID-19 crisis. Here's Amy Goodman. At a time when many journalists are risking their lives to cover one of the most significant stories of their lifetime, media companies are slashing jobs and salaries. Over the past week, hundreds of journalists at Vice, Quartz, The Economist, BuzzFeed, Condé Nast have been laid off. In April, The New York Times estimated 36,000 employees of news media companies had been laid off, furloughed, or had their pay reduced since the arrival of the pandemic. 36,000. And that was a month ago. That's Amy Goodman on, in May on job losses in journalism. Um, she went on to say that the crisis in journalism is not new. She quoted the Pew Research Center saying that U.S. newspapers have shed about half of their newsroom staff since 2008. That's a, quite a number there, half of their staff. So, And it's similar uh, in Canada as well. We're facing the same crisis here but in some ways it's not as bad as in the U.S. Um, Victor, you, you imagine someone trying to describe the U.S. media system to a visitor from another dimension. Let's say <laughs> I'm, I'm that visitor from another dimension. How would you uh, describe it to me? Right. So if you were coming from this other uh, dimension and looked at the American media system, you would note that much of this system is dominated by a handful of corporations. Uh, to, call, to call them oligopolies in many cases is overly generous. Uh, oftentimes we're really talking about duopolies or even monopolies that have tremendous control over vast swaths of the American media system. Beyond that, you would notice that these corporations are only lightly regulated, uh, if at all, um, there are very few public interest uh, regulations. Um, someone might might tell you that there was a time when we had stronger public interest uh, protections in the U.S., such as the Fairness Doctrine, but that was jettisoned in, in 1987. But I think the most important feature that you would note uh, in the American media system that we've already been uh, hinting at throughout this conversation is the extreme commercialism. Um, the, the American media system is, is overwhelmingly dominated by 
these commercial imperatives. And there are only weak public alternatives. We have a, a public, uh, for example, our public broadcasting system, which many people hold in high regard. But if you compare that to other democratic countries around the world, we are almost literally off the chart. I have a chart in my book that shows this. For, for how much money we pay per person per year towards our public media, it comes out to about $1.40 per person um, at the federal level. If you throw in uh, local and regional subsidies, you might get, in, get, get it up to about uh, $3.40, where comparing that to Western and Northern uh, European countries, for example, uh, the BBC receives about $100 per person per year. If you look at some of the Nordic countries, you may get up to somewhere around $200 per person per year. So what this means is that we in the United States are left with a very impoverished social safety net for when the market fails to support the level of journalism that, that democratic society needs. And that's exactly the the problem I'm trying to draw attention to. And beyond that, beyond uh, you know using this this kind of thought exercise of how you would try to explain this system to someone for whom uh, the, the, it's not a natural system, I'm drawing attention to the fact that this is not what a democratic society would typically uh, desire. You know, this is this is not a natural or inevitable system. It's something that was historically contingent that developed because particular interests won out over others. And, and throughout my work, I often point to these earlier policy battles um, that led us to inherit this weird system in the U.S. But all this is an attempt to denaturalize it. I think that's the first step towards changing it. Now, you did mention the fairness doctrine that was done away with in 1987. Why was What was the fairness doctrine and why was it important? Well, the fairness doctrine is often held up as the high watermark for enlightened policymaking, media policymaking in the U.S. And I try to problematize uh, those assumptions because actually if you trace it back to the 1940s when the fairness doctrine was first established, you'll see that it actually in many ways was a consolation prize uh, to media reformers who were actually advocating for even more aggressive structural reforms. Now, first, what is it? Many people think, uh, often conflate the fairness doctrine with the equal time rule, uh, which is this idea that, you know, two sides, both both political uh, sides, oftentimes presumed to be, you know, one Democrat, one Republican, get equal time in our media. But that's not what the fairness doctrine was meant to do. Rather, it was meant to mandate broadcasters for them to hold on to their monopolistic use, their license to the public airways, they must cover important and even controversial issues that local communities wanted to hear or see uh, on, on, their, on their local public airwaves, and, uh, and then to do so in a balanced manner. So there really was this kind of affirmative duty that media owners, that broadcasters in particular, had to cover these these issues. And not just two sides, but a multiplicity, a plurality of viewpoints to really try to broaden the spectrum of political debate um, in the U.S. Now, I won't leave our listeners uh, you know, in suspense, of course. Um, this uh, was never uh, a perfect uh, reform to begin with. 
Um, but it did maintain some level of accountability. It did provide activists or just concerned citizens with a tool to try to um, you know, discipline their, their local broadcasters to cover important issues. But it, it, it never quite lived up to that. And then it was thrown out uh, during the, the Reagan administration in the 1980s. Now, um, Victor Picard, it, it does seem obvious, as you mention, and as you stress in your book, that the current crisis in American journalism is really related to a collapse in advertising revenue uh, that for 150 years or so has been the main source of mainstream media revenues and profits. Yet, um, you write in your book that commercial journalism has always been in crisis no golden age to look back to. Um, why do you say that? I'm glad you asked that question because people who uh, listen to me speak uh, and, and don't actually read my book um, sometimes uh, mistakenly assume or project onto what I'm saying uh, that there was some kind of golden age, some sort of mythological golden era of, of American journalism. And I'm very clear that I'm not arguing that. Um, I don't think there was ever a great moment. I mean, certainly, I think we could say that things have gotten worse, and there may have been earlier moments. People often point to the 1970s during the you know the era of, of Watergate and the Pentagon Papers that there used to be more robust investigative journalism. That that arguably might be true, but we have to be clear that for since the dawn of commercialization and really throughout the entire history of the American press. It has never served uh, all communities uh, particularly well, especially uh, communities of color and lower socioeconomic communities. So I want to really disabuse people of this notion that we once had a great press and we just need to go back to that moment. Beyond that, I'm also trying to show, because I'm drawing attention to these structural factors, I want to show that many of these problems were baked into the commercial model, into the very DNA of the American press system since the moment it first commercialized. And as you know, that means when it first became reliant on advertising revenue. And the U.S. is, is different, although the Canadian uh, press is very similar in this regard as well. But most newspaper industries around the world aren't as reliant on advertising revenue. In the U.S., it often broke down to about... 80% to 20%. So 80% of their revenues derived from advertising revenue and 20% derived from various kinds of reader support, such as subscriptions or, or, or newsstand sales. Um, and now as, as we've seen that advertising model collapse, that really has spelled the, the doom of the core business model for American journalism. And, and just to add a few more details to that, what we're really talking about, and there's often this lazy narrative that it's the internet that killed journalism. That's not true. It's this over-reliance on advertising. And so that when advertisers and readers migrated to the web and you saw digital advertising revenue pay pennies to the dollar of traditional advertising revenue, that's that's what led to to this this collapse of the core business model, and that's really the the sort of the crux of the economic crisis for journalism. But these structural problems were always there, and that's why I say American journalism has always been prone to crisis. You're listening to a New Books Network interview with Victor Picard, author of Democracy Without Journalism: Confronting the Misinformation Society. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. 
You, you talk about the deep historical roots of the present crisis uh, in American journalism, and, and how would you summarize that history briefly? Right. So as I noted, ever since you had this reliance on advertising revenue, it encouraged particular uh, tendencies in cover in in press coverage. It encouraged or incentivized uh, publishers to um, really emphasize sensationalistic covering. We had this term from from the the late 1800s, early 1900s, yellow journalism, which is really was you know what we refer to as clickbait today, or maybe although we can't really use this term anymore, but fake news. But just uh, this, this uh, we can't use that term because, of course, Donald Trump has, has basically co-opted it. Um, but this idea that because the, the highest premium was placed on profit, on how can we turn a profit, it wasn't concerned about how do we inform citizens. It treated audiences as consumers, as passive consumers not engaged citizens. So that meant whatever we could do to attract their attention, just as Facebook is doing this today, the, the publishers, the newspaper publishers of the early 1900s were most concerned about capturing our attention and delivering it to advertisers. And advertisers were never really that worried about supporting local journalism or investigative reporting. They were trying to gain access to audiences. The best way to do that was to go to the local newspaper, which typically had a local monopoly over that given market. So this was this relationship of, of convenience, a marriage of, of convenience and necessity. It wasn't about informing people. It wasn't about uh, enriching democracy in any meaningful way. When it did, and it certainly did do that at times, that was really more of a byproduct of this economic relationship between advertisers and publishers and media owners. Once that once that relationship was no longer convenient, once advertisers were able to find a better deal online, then they jumped ship. Uh, and that's what's left us today. Journalism was always a public good. It was never meant to be a commodity, but that, that relationship was camouflaged by the fact that it was so profitable for so many years. And that relationship had become naturalized now we realize that advertisers, which really provided a kind of subsidy for the journalism we, we needed, um, are no longer there to support it, and we have to find some other means to do so. I have to say, Victor, having read your book, that there's a real sense of urgency in it. Uh, you write that journalism is just as important as public education, libraries, and parks. A viable press system is not a luxury it is a necessity. And yet you also write that uh, key policymakers in the states, the politicians and the policy wonks and so on, are not really doing anything about the present crisis. Why is that if, it, if journalism is so vital? I'm glad you asked this question because that's the question I'm really grappling with in my book. Why has there been almost no policy response whatsoever to what should be seen as a national and even international uh, crisis. And again, I think it goes back to this point that journalism, or at least the information produced by journalism, should be seen as a public good. Public goods are not are provided or are not supported by the market in terms of quantity 
and quality. It is something that you typically have to find non-market means of support. Um, and I think public education is another great example. Public parks, uh, libraries, even the military uh, is something that typically we would not leave subjected to be entirely supported by market relationships. Um, now, there's a technical economic term also, a public good is non-rivalrous and non-excludable. This means that it's very difficult to prevent free riders. In other words, it's very difficult to, to monetize. Um, it's also very uh, difficult to create barriers around. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard, again, to treat it as something that individuals will pay for. Um, it's something that societies need to provide for. And throughout history, we saw moments where there was this public recognition that the market was doing great violence to journalism. Uh, I point in my book, I point to earlier moments in the early 1900s when there were these public reactions to the kinds of yellow journalism that I mentioned earlier. There was also the Hutchins Commission, the Kerner Commission. It's like every few decades, um, there's this kind of reckoning, but we're constantly kicking the can down the road, never really dealing with the structural roots of the problems, and therefore uh, it only reemerges uh, again and again. And, and unfortunately, this time, I think the crisis is quite existential, so we really do have to figure it out. Yes. Um, uh, in your book, you see the present crisis in, in American journalism as an opportunity to democratize the media system. But at the same time, I notice that you're skeptical about the potential for reviving the present system with things like that have often been touted, like, say, citizen journalism, news financed by subscriptions and paywalls. Um, in fact, you write that the present system can't be revived. Um, why do you say that? That's right. I think the evidence is overwhelmingly clear at this point. Um, it, it, it's been clear for some time, but I think even now uh, we're finally seeing some uh, consensus emerge, which is that there is no commercial option. There's no commercial future for many kinds of journalism, especially those kinds of journalism that we keep talking about, like local journalism in particular. The market will not solve this problem. So we really have to look outside the market um, to, to try to find a way to support the journalism we need. And, and I, I go through the book and look, you know, discuss the various studies and the, and the empirical evidence that, that supports this conclusion. And, and we see that not only has the advertising revenue entirely collapsed irreparably, but also we can't depend on paywalls, on individual subscribers uh, to, to pay enough. Again, going back to this idea of, of, of the public good nature of journalism, and, and it's something that we can't expect individuals to pay enough towards. They're either unwilling or unable to pay enough money. Now, this is true for, I would argue, almost all newspapers or news outlets. The great exceptions, as we mentioned earlier, are the big three in the U.S., the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and New York Times. But beyond those big national papers and perhaps some small niche outlets, most newspapers cannot be sustained 
by by uh, reader support, by individual uh, subscribers. So then we have to look at the two models that I uh, look at most uh, most extensively would be the nonprofit model, where we can look to rich benefactors or foundations and various kinds of philanthropic and charitable uh, institutions to support journalism or to at least contribute towards journalism. Um, we might have hybrid models as well, where it might be part commercial and, and part nonprofit. Um, and, and I think there are many exciting uh, exemplars that we can point to in this regard. But I'm also very clear that that also is not a systemic fix. That might save a newspaper here and there or create a new outlet here and there, but that's not going to provide the kind of systemic fix that we need. And that's why, in the end, I place so much emphasis on a public media option for the future of journalism. And, and what would a public media option look like? So I think there are many uh, important details that, that need to be worked out, especially at the local level. And that's why I'm hesitant to be um, overly uh, uh, prescriptive in, in, in my analysis, because I think in the end, local communities need to make these decisions for themselves. But I think at the very least, federal governments should have an affirmative duty to provide the necessary resources. And that's why I call for a massive public media trust fund <laughs> to support the kind of journalism, to go into the news deserts, to make sure that all people, all, all members of society, all communities have access to the news and information that they need. But beyond that, I think that this must be devolved uh, in terms of ownership and control to the state and local levels, there needs to be multiple layers of uh, of citizen bureaus that are representative of the of the broader society, um, and and also that journalists themselves should own and control their newsrooms. So I'm really seeing not just I think the first step is try to remove journalism as much as possible from the market to first decommercialize or decommodify it. But the second step is that we must radically democratize it. It must be not just public in name, but actually publicly owned and controlled. And that's that's really my key uh, conclusion in my book um, to really focus on reimagining what journalism could and should be and entirely restructure it from the ground up. Yes, I'd like to explore that a little bit, the, the restructuring, giving more, giving journalists more say over what they do, giving local communities more, more say over what they get reported to them. Um, how do you see that happening? Like, what would the structures be like? Well, I think there are, there are a number of ways uh, of doing this, um, and you know the first the first step, of course, is to guarantee the resources. And there's always a reaction to that. You know, how do we how do we pay for this? Um, and I think the the ideal scenario would be to simply uh, uh, take that money straight out of the treasury um, to treat treat this as as something as important as. National as public education or national defense, um, these core infrastructures and systems that we would not sit there and say, you know, how are you going to pay for that? It's just a necessity. It's not. It's not a luxury. But beyond that, 
We also could look at ways, for example, everything from taxing the platform monopolies, which I, I failed to mention earlier. I mean, what digital advertising revenue is being generated is almost entirely going to the big bad duopoly of Facebook and Google. So this idea that they should allocate a small percentage of their sizable profits uh, towards a public media system, towards a public media fund is something that, that I've argued for in various places. Um, and also we could repurpose already existing public infrastructures and, and media subsidies. When Americans hear this phrase media subsidy, they fall into a fetal position. But if we know our history, uh, media subsidies are as American as apple pie. They go back to the postal system. The, me the government's always involved, always subsidizing our media system. It's just a question of how they should do that. Um, and we also could be repurposing international broadcasting uh, subsidies. I even argue for using the postal system as a, as a new kind of uh, news uh, delivery infrastructure and even to convert uh, post offices into community media centers. So there are many different ways we can do this, many ideas out there. It's just a failure of political will. But be, after we decide how we're going to support it in terms of resources and providing the necessary public space for news production, we have to guarantee that it remains democratized, that it remains independent. And Americans are often very fearful that any sort of publicly uh, subsidized media system is a slippery slope towards totalitarianism. And we can point to thriving democratic societies around the world where that clearly is not true. In fact, strong public media systems often correlate with strong democracies. So other democratic societies have figured this out. I think we can in the United States as well. And again, as I mentioned earlier, many ways of doing this, but I think it really stems from this idea of local control, of setting up news bureaus or to have constant dialogue. And studies are now showing, really not, not surprising at all, that when news outlets are in constant dialogue, when there's constant engagement with local citizens, there's higher levels of public trust. And that gets to the third question oftentimes that people um, throw up when I talk about this new kind of public media system, once we build it, how can we guarantee that people will actually come to it, trust it, use it? And I think if, if local citizens are directly engaged with every level of news production and governance, they're going, to tr they're going to trust that news media system. And we already have some evidence that shows that this, this, this is true. So those are just some basic parameters. But I also argue that journalists themselves need to be very much in control of their own newsrooms. They need to, for example, one idea is that they should elect their own editors, um, that, that, uh, that they're actually uh, engaged in ownership and governance of their new own newsrooms. This also means they should be unionized. And this means that the newsrooms should look like the communities that they serve. So really this whole division between journalists and local communities needs to be broken down. Now, Victor Picard, I want to end with a look at journalism itself, the kind of, not the kind of journalism you're criticizing here, but the kind you, you envision in a new system which would benefit from large public subsidies. I think from the Treasury, you mentioned the figure of $30 billion a year uh, to, as, a, as a cornerstone of public finance for media, for news media. 
uh, and all of the additional sources of revenue you mentioned as well. But you also hold, paint a picture, um, a, quite a compelling one, if I can say that, of the kind of journalism. Uh, and um, I'm just going to quote here, journalism that privileges democracy over profits, that goes to where the silences are in society, an information system that keeps a laser-like focus on climate change, hyper-inequality, mass incarceration. Uh, th that's a kind of um, a vision of a journalism that doesn't really exist now. And how likely do you think it is that we can get there? That's an excellent question. And, and you're absolutely right. This is admittedly a utopian vision. But I guess I'm taking as my baseline point of departure is that we really don't have a choice. I mean, if we, if we really want the kind of journalism that we need, we're going to have to radically restructure it, reimagine what's possible. And that really, in a nutshell, is what my entire book is dedicated to doing, is simply broadening our imagination about what is possible. And I think it's precisely during these dark political moments when we should put forward these bold ideas. And I, I think to, to look at, uh, you know, to basically try to think what this new kind of journalism would look like. In many ways, I'm simply saying, let journalists be journalists. This is why journalists went into the profession in the first place, is to speak truth to power, to give voice to the voiceless. And I, I think this is something that they would be liberated uh, to do if we removed these commercial pressures, if we took journalism out of the market and allowed it to be the public good that it was always meant to be. So this is what I'm advocating for. And I do think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite uh, possible. I think, the, I think history is open-ended. So if we begin talking about it in terms of concrete possibilities, and if we look at already promising signs, there are already many new and exciting experiments, both in the U.S. and, and around the world, I think we can, we can really um, uh, broaden our view of, of what's possible, of what journalism could and should be. And I'm weirdly optimistic that this can happen. I'm especially given hope by the fact that young people today are less enthralled to market fundamentalism. And I think uh, it, it's, it's, it's on them to really try to rebuild our core systems and infrastructures and, and to make sure that they do actually serve democracy and not simply profits for a small number of rich white men. Well, Victor Picard, I certainly enjoyed talking with you about uh, your book, Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And uh, it's, uh, you know, one in a series of, of books and articles you've written on the news media in the U.S. Um, where do you go from here? What are you working on next? Right. So many of the questions that we've been discussing throughout this conversation are actually leading me to the next book project, which is tentatively titled The Media We Need. And it's really trying to put some flesh on these bones of, you know, what would this new media system look like? Um, you know, how could we ensure that it is radically democratic, that it actually does serve the communities? it's purportedly always meant to serve. 
and and how can we guarantee that these newsrooms of the future uh, actually look like the, those communities? So this book uh, is really going to focus on questions such as you know, kind of the nuts and bolts questions of you know what would these new kinds of journalism look like? What would these new routines look like? How would we um, set up these relationships between journalists and local communities? How would they be governed? How would they be financially supported? What's happened around the world and throughout history? So really just trying to add more uh, examples and to continue contributing to this broader conversation that we're all that we all should be engaged in, which is how do we create a, a media system that actually serves democracy? Uh, and so this will be the, the core question of my next book. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Victor. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bruce. I've really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to an interview with Victor Picard, Professor of Media Policy and Political Economy at the Annenberg School for Communication. His book is called Democracy Without Journalism? Confronting the Misinformation Society. The interviewer was Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.